Good morning, church. Uh, it's great to be with you and um, love seeing images of that as we get ready for Mission Sunday in a few weeks. You know that's one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that we live out that part of our mission statement. We meet up to connect with God, we plug in for community, but we try to live that out in a way that literally changes the world. And we'll do that in local missions, foreign missions, your own personal witness. But this is a way where whether you're going on a trip or you're making those connections, serving in a local ministry, or whether you are partnering, that's Paul's word for it, in giving. Uh, our giving and contribution to that, Paul uses the word that we use, uh, translate as fellowship, partnership. When we contribute to this, we are partnering with the people that are there on the front lines, even if you're not able to do that. So we're excited about that opportunity coming up. And, and, and speaking of that kind of mission and vision statement, what, what we've been trying to do, if you're just joining us the last few weeks, we're trying to look at a visual picture in the Bible of when God walked with his people through what we call a discipleship pathway. How does God actually take his people into the purpose of their lives and being in the world? And there's a bunch of places he does this in the Bible, but one of the most powerful places he does this is in the story known as the Exodus. And we're talking about this as a picture of God's invitation to join him in the adventure of living out the purpose that you have for this life which is joining with God to literally recreate the world, to renew and reclaim the brokenness of the world. That's what the Exodus story is about. We've been unpacking that over the course of the last few weeks. So we're going to read the scripture today that we're going to be looking at. If you have your Bibles and devices, we're going to flip into a couple different places. Now, understand we can't dig you know, too much in every part of this. We're just doing an overview. So today, literally, we're doing an overview of chapter 7 all the way through chapter 14, basically. So I want to read a couple of chunks in here uh, and get a picture of the story. We left off with uh, the people of God crying out. God has indicated that he sees and he cares and he's going to come down and do something about the oppression and injustice they're facing. And, uh, and this is the beginning of that you find in Exodus chapter 7, this is the word of the Lord, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt... He will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So that's the beginning of this, and we're going to skip down to the end. The last um, one of these signs in, in mighty acts God does delivers them literally through what we call the Red Sea, um, and we'll see that story in chapter 14, starting in verse 10. God has led his people out. They're starting to go out. Pharaoh changes his mind one more time, sends the army after him. That's where we pick it up. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? 
It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his armies through his chariots and the horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretches out his hand and divides the sea. And then verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. And the water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, their servant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remember a few years ago now, my friend Scott went to a ministry conference and it was out of state from where he lived and he decided for a couple of days to stay with a friend of his that he hadn't seen a whole lot, but he went, stayed at their house, and I think it was the second or third day that he'd been at the conference. He'd already stayed there a night or two, and he came back at the end of the conference a little bit later, and when he came into the house, everybody in the house had already gone to sleep. But he wasn't tired yet, and so he thought, oh, I'll just be really quiet, but I want to kind of turn on the TV and just kind of relax a little bit. He sits down on the couch, turns on the TV, puts down really low, goes in the kitchen and, you know, gets a drink and a couple snacks, and he just kind of sits there. And, and then after a little while, he gets up to kind of go use the restroom, and, and this weird feeling comes over him. He was like, it just seems to me like the bathroom's on the wrong side of the house. And he said, like, the, the hallway felt like it was on the wrong side of the house. And so he looks around a little bit, and he kind of pays attention to the pictures and the signs of family life all around him, and all of a sudden it hits him. Can you guess what he did? He went to the wrong house. <laughs> he went to the next door neighbors. He's sitting in their house eating their food, watching their TV, and he's freaking out in the middle of the night. What am I doing? So he turns it off. He gets out as fast as he can. He came back the next day and knocked on the door, and he said, I'm so sorry. Did you hear, like, creepy guy in the house? They said, we heard something, but we didn't know <laughs> I'm thinking it's a good thing he was not in Texas. He might not have made it out of the house, let's be honest. <laughs> I, I, I think about a moment like that, and, and somehow that picture of where he stood is symbolic to me in a way. Have you ever had a time in your life or seasons 
in your life when you just kind of kind of wake up and realize I am not where I intended to be? I'm not where I wanted to be. I'm not where God, I think, led me to be. Have you ever had those times? Or maybe it's more like the moment before he kind of wakes up and you just have a feeling that you're not in the right place. You're not going the right direction. Have you ever had that feeling before? Oh, it's one thing when it's kind of a physical situation. It's embarrassing and kind of funny now. But if this is a life directional thing, if this is a spiritual thing, the stakes are much higher when we're going the wrong way and we find ourselves in the wrong place, the stakes are higher for us and the impact on the lives of other people. And that's why one of the things I love about God, one of the great gifts that God gives us is he gives us guidance and direction in our lives. In fact, did you know this story that we read of Exodus is found in a section in the Old Testament known as the Torah. And unfortunately for years, we have translated that word law and that just conjures up speed limits and stop signs. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks too. But, but here, the picture for them was not laws or rules. The, pic, the literal translation of the word Torah is guidance or direction. This is one of the great gifts of God that he actually gives us guidance and direction in our lives so that we don't have to have those moments like Scott had, spiritually speaking, when we wake up and we're like, oh my goodness, how did I get here? So I want you to think about this whole section of Scripture. Again, we're covering a lot, but I want you to think about it in maybe two movements, two pictures. Uh, the first thing, isn't it wonderful that God will give us what I call wrong way signs sometimes in our lives? God in his kindness will point out when our lives and our hearts and our relationships are going the wrong way. And I want you to maybe... Maybe you, you've kind of got this picture already, or I might invite you to rethink about the plagues in a different way. I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking, in fact, even the way we call it, I, I think about the 10 plagues as God's punishment and retribution. And there's a sense in which that makes sense. I mean, when we read the harshness of some of these plagues, we are reminded of how the story started. Don't forget that it wasn't just Pharaoh, but the entire nation of Egypt participated in genocide right please don't forget that it initially started with the midwives and that didn't work so pharaoh made it a law that any egyptian had to kill the firstborn sons of the hebrews that's genocide and god does respond to it but hear me this is really important if all we do is think of the plagues as god's punishment to them we consistently make God out to be a traffic cop waiting for us to screw up and he's going to throw lightning bolts down from heaven. Here's what's interesting to me. A couple different things that will help us see this. We translate it, translate it, we call them the ten plagues. In fact, if your Bible is like mine, it'll go through the plague of the frogs and the plague of this and that. Now, if you heard and were listening carefully to the first thing I read, that is not what the Bible calls them. Did you catch what God said? I am going to perform... What? Signs. So I want you to think about this. It's really important. And we'll see a different picture of our God here, perhaps. God says the plagues, even though they are harsh and difficult, they're intended to be signs. They were intended to be signs for Pharaoh, for Egypt, for Israel, and the whole world. It was a sign that said you're going the wrong way. You weren't here with us the first week, or if you were, let me remind you of this. We talked about the characters in the story are both historical and symbolic. So Pharaoh is a real person. He was a real king, but he's also a symbol 
of the world story. Some people call it the story of empire. I call it the story of human power or, or self-determination. Think about it this way. Kind of, we'll, we'll talk about this extended before. Let me just throw it out there. The original sin in the garden was humanity's declaration of independence before God. That was the original sin. It was telling God, I don't need you, don't need your direction and your guidance for life. I can do it on my own. And I'm telling you, we built whole stories about that, whole narratives, whole worldviews. I love America. The American dream is a world story. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I can make myself secure and peaceful. That is a Pharaoh story. It is not a God story. And Pharaoh represents this. And here's what God will do powerfully. He's an amazing teacher. And he's passionate about getting through the hearts of people. And he said, I'm going to not just do one thing and zap them out. I'm going to do ten signs to increasingly intensifying, telling you you're going the wrong way. So let's think about it this way. A couple different ways in which God is telling them in the plagues they're going the wrong way. Number one, if you're like me, if you've read through these in the past, you might think these are really random things God does. We've got frogs and we've got, you know, boils and we've got, you know, water and just weird stuff, right? Well, here's the thing. God's very intentional. He's a phenomenal teacher. Two different things that's happening with the plagues. First of all, God is systematically demonstrating his superiority over Egyptian gods. It's very intentional in each one of them. Follow it this way, all right? I'll just give you a few examples of this. We could do it with a lot of them. And, you know, scholars will debate one thing or another, but this will give you a picture of it, right? So the first plague is turning the Nile to blood. Did you know that they worshipped the spirit of the Nile? His name was Hopi, and he was intended to be a life-giving God. So what God does is he says, okay, I'm going to show my superiority over your God in that way. Did you know they had a fertility God that brought crops and kids. That's what fertility gods did in their world, crops and kids. And he was represented by a frog. Isn't it interesting that they intended their frog god to fill their house with food and with children, and instead it gets filled with frustration and distraction and annoyance. Don't make any kid jokes on that one, by the way. But the, it was full of this with the frogs. So you say, one, God undermines that God. They had a God that was represented by a heifer, and they had a God up here that was, uh, that was represented by a bull, and then God takes that out. And then it comes to the apex of this. We can do this for a lot of them. It comes to the apex in the last two plagues. Uh, one of their most famous gods in Egypt is the god Ra. Does anybody know what the god Ra was the god of? He was the sun god. What does the ninth plague do? Complete darkness. God is systematically showing them up. And of course, the last one is the pinnacle. Because Pharaoh, in their world, was not just a king. He was also a God. And so was his firstborn son. And God says, I am God. And all of these other ones are inferior. Now, here's the thing. Watch for this. Because I told you, Exodus didn't just happen. It happens. This is the epic story that God does. But I promise you, if you watch for it in your life, there will be warning signs in your own life that you're headed the wrong way. It can happen in a group and a culture too. God, in his kindness, will point out to us we're going the way that destroys life and doesn't give it. So watch for that. 
There'll be little signs one way or another. I'll just give one example, but the Holy Spirit will apply this a whole lot better than I could to your personal example. I think of a guy, we'll call him Ralph, that's not his name, but he's a good friend of mine. And over the course of several years, one of the things that I recognized, and we were close enough that we could tell truth to each other. You got friends like that? And I said, Ralph, can, can, I, can I make an observation? Just some signs I've seen in your life. I said, Ralph, what I've noticed is over the course of the last several years, your total focus was finding the woman that you wanted to be with. That was your focus was on the woman. And I said, here's the problem. And we were close. We could say this to each other. I said, my observation is your relationships have been one train wreck after another. It's been conflict. It's been unhealthy relationships, all that kind of stuff. I said, is it possible that these things are signs to you that you're going the wrong way? You're focused on the woman and God says, I want you to work on you and your relationship with me. And if you get your heart right, watch what will happen. The woman that you're seeking will actually come into proximity with you and she'll be healthy. Right now you're chasing unhealthy people because you're broken. Does that make sense? Now watch for it, and the Holy Spirit will give you just little nudges. You know, it'll be like that feeling my friend Scott had. Well, hold on. I feel like the bathroom is supposed to be over there. <laughs> I feel like I was supposed to be moving this direction. God is that kind. He will put these signs in your life. All right, so that's one picture of the wrong way sign of Egypt. God will give us these moments where he will show you you're worshiping the wrong God, right? You're going the wrong way with this, right? Uh, the second picture of this is really powerful. Think about this in a, in a deeper way, too. Did you realize, and I'm going to say it a particular way, and let's unpack it. But once you see it, it'll just leap off the page. Did you realize that the plagues are actually God doing the uncreation of Egypt? It is the reverse of the creation story in Egypt. Follow it this way. It is the undoing of God's good creation. All right, so let's, let's think about this. First thing God does in the creation story, he says, let there be light. What happens in the ninth plague? There's complete darkness. The second thing God does in creation is he separates out water. We'll come back to that more in a moment. He separates out the water so that the water in the Hebrew world, the water, especially the sea, was a symbol of chaos and destruction. So God hems in the waters so that they are life-giving instead of death, you know, killing you. And there's stuff in the water that comes to life. There's fish. What happens in the plagues? The first plague the water itself goes from life giver to death. And the stuff in it, what? Dies. God keep going through the creation story. What else does God do? He creates plants for animals and, and people to eat. And then he puts land animals on the land. What happens in the plagues? The cattle literally die. And he first gets them with hail, and then the locusts, it says, take out all the rest. They have no plants anymore. Do you see this? It's powerful. It is the reverse of the creation story. In the plagues, he's uncreating Egypt. And of course, when you get to plague nine and you look back, the only thing left is the sixth day of creation. What did God create on the sixth day? Human beings. And what happens in the last plague? Human beings die. Now watch this. This is deep stuff, but it is so true, and God does this sometimes in Scripture, right? The flood is another example of this. Sometimes a people group will be going so far away from God, what he will do is he will hold a mirror up to them, and he will allow the circumstances of their lives to say, do you see where you're going? 
It starts out with things that are annoyances, and then it becomes epic with the last plague. God says, listen to me, this is so huge. I used to think sins were breaking God's rules, and he's a cosmic traffic cop that's going to come give me tickets. No, listen to me. God is passionate that we are life givers and life receivers, and when we're going the wrong way, he wants to get our attention, and he will give us signs. This is so important to see. God's judgment is never just punitive. He is not a punisher. We've got to let go of that image. Yes, he does justice. Hear it. God's judgment is always intended to be redemptive. And even with Pharaoh, that's what's going on with the heart and the hearts, and we can really unpack it a lot. God is after Pharaoh's heart. He could have taken him out immediately if he wanted. What did he do? He gave him every opportunity to what? Know that I'm the Lord and your story's the wrong one and you're in the wrong house. When Pharaoh hardens his heart enough, God says, okay, I'm going to assist you in that process. Why? Because I got other people I'm trying to get that message to and I'm going to keep giving them signs. So if you don't get it, maybe Egypt will. And if you don't get it, Israel will. And if they don't get it, maybe the world will. Do you see that? Isn't that powerful? God's judgment itself is actually grace. He's trying to give us signs. We don't have time to get into all this. There's so many cool things going on, but let me just drop this one in. Do you realize it actually, the Exodus story works? Israel gets it a little bit. We ended the passage with, they trusted God and Moses' servant. Now they're going to flip on that. Uh, Monty will talk about that next week. They're going to flip on that a little bit. But did you know, even far away, people will get that God is God Go read the beginning of the story in Joshua. And you remember the story maybe of a lady named Rahab and spies come into the land. Does anybody remember what Rahab said to the people when they came in? We've heard about your God. And she says, our hearts are melting in fear because of him. Because we heard how he split the Red Sea in Egypt and we know he is God. It might not have worked for Pharaoh. But it worked for at least one lady in Rahab so much, she turned around from the pagan direction she was going and turned into the heart of the community of God's people. And she's part of the storyline of Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that powerful? God will give us wrong way signs in our lives sometime and invite us to turn back his direction. Watch for it. Now here's the great grace of God too. He doesn't just tell you where not to go. He tells you where to go. He's going to give you go this way signs, right? And by the way, this is really, really important. You find this in the book of Romans. If you're like me, when I've struggled with sins or just failures in my life or whatever, sometimes we pay so much attention to what we're not supposed to do. Do you know Paul says that actually empowers the sin? If all you do is focus on not doing stuff, you actually make that stronger Here's what Paul says. You don't focus on the negative, you focus on the positive. Paul's language, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Or in other words, here's the best way to stop going the wrong way. What? You know what the word repent means? Turn around. Best way to stop going the wrong way is actually turn and start going the right way. And so God will give us direction, signs in our lives that we follow that and the negative life-killing stuff will go away. Isn't that glorious? Now here's what I love. The picture I learned from a guy named James McClendon talks about it this way. He said, God, when he interacts with us, 
I don't usually highlight you. He interacts with sign language. He's going to speak sign language to us. I want you to think about this way. We're pretty familiar with personal signs, like God shows up in our lives. He answers prayer when we pray. Last week we talked about how God calls us to certain places and stations in life. We'll talk about that another time. But I want you to think about these first two things. Because once you get this, it opens up the stuff we do every week and the story of Exodus in really powerful ways. And it will tell you who you are. Here's a way to think about it. God, first of all, says we have these things called great historical signs. In other words, God's doing stuff all the time. But if you read through the Bible every now and then, he'll talk about certain things, the events that are so incredibly important. He says, I want you to keep coming back to this. Keep coming back to this. Here's my word picture of it. Uh, Imagine history is like a book. And if you're going through the book, you know, everything's in there. It's pretty cool. But there are certain epically important things. So imagine God's great historical signs is like a big highlighter. He says, I want to put a big highlighter in the middle of history and biblical history and say, keep coming back to this. It will be on the test. It's the most important thing, right? Now, you know we're studying the book of Exodus because it is one of the great historical signs. Uh, The historical sign of the Passover and and, and the Red Sea. We'll get to that in a moment. Think about the New Testament. New Testament has these great historical signs. Easy question. What are the great historical signs of the New Testament? What's our great historical sign? You can talk to me. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would add the ascension too when when he goes on power. Death, burial, resurrection. Great historical sign. Other things are important. Coming of Spirit at Pentecost. Great historical sign. Really powerful. Now, here's where the magic, you know that kind of stuff. Here's where the magic happens. God, in his brilliance, says, I want my people not just to think about this. I want them to live this out. So I'm going to give them remembering signs that are connected to every great historical sign. And there's a reason I put a hyphen in the middle of this. Right? I've mentioned this before. We taught this in our Bible class on Wednesday. But I want to put this out here remember, when we hear that word, we think of thinking about something, follow me on this, that only happened in the past. I remember something that was a past event. That is not the way a Jewish mindset would read it. That is not the biblical picture of remember. You got to put the hyphen in there. To remember in the biblical sense of the word, re again, embody it, to remember it again, to embody it again. Here's an analogy for that. There are some people that are such Civil War history buffs that they don't want to just read it in a book. What do they do? Reenact it. And you better believe it comes to life when they're out there and they dress up in the stuff and they fight the battle and feel what must have felt like to go brother against brother in a battle. They reenact it. Now listen to me. This is enormous. God does not want us to just have smart minds. He gives us these great historical events. And then he says, I'm going to give you practices that allow you to reenact it on an ongoing basis so it gets into your system and it comes out of you natural ways. Isn't that awesome? So think about it this way. In the Exodus story, you get both a meal and water. Let's look at both of them. The meal, remembering sign is what we call the Passover. They, I love the way one of my uh, Messianic Jewish rabbi friends calls it an edible Bible study. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, I saw you look up. I was, I, was ha- I was excited about that too, Jerry. I can do an edible Bible study anytime. He wanted them to re-embody it. All right, follow this. The Passover meal that they did that first night and they've done ever since 
was not just a little ritual they go through. It was them reenacting the Exodus story in the present moment because that's who they are. So much that go flip forward to Deuteronomy um, chapter 26. And when they tell the story of the Exodus, it's still true today. They don't say they were slaves in Egypt and they were let out by God. What do they say? We were slaves in Egypt and we were let out because it isn't just a past moment. The power of the great historical sign comes true again in the moment in the meal. Now, here's where the real magic happens. Then as they go out and live life for the rest of the year, Exodus didn't just happen. It's supposed to happen and keep on happening. Now, wouldn't it be great if we too had a meal that is a remembering sign of our great historical sign. I think we do. We call it, by the way, let's use all the names the church has used and we get the significance of it. It is the Lord's Supper. He is here, resurrected, hosting a meal. You get a seat at the table. It is communion. We are communing together with the body of Christ. We belong to each other. And yes, it is Eucharist. is just a Greek word of the first word that is talked about in the institution of it. Jesus thanked God. It is an expression of gratitude. All of those things were in Passover. All of those things are in communion. And and we reenact it. Hear me, this is so important. We get this with baptism, but we often don't get this with the Lord's Supper. Listen to this. It will change the way we pray. And don't pick on anybody if we do this. But we don't get up and pray over the Lord's Supper and say, God, we're going to think about your crucifixion. No, we're not remembering. We're remembering. He's alive. He's resurrected. And so what we do is we say when we take the meal, we know that you were broken and you died and you poured your life out for others. So now when we take the meal, guess what we do? We die to ourselves and we pour ourselves out and we're willing to be broken for others. We reenact it. The Lord's Supper is not a box we check. It is a reenactment that is intended to propel us into the world to live like the meal we just ate. Do we get that? Great example, my friend tells me, a friend named Jeff, he was at our church, he was visiting our church to speak one day, and he said, and don't, don't act like this never happens to you, but he said on the way to church, he and his wife were fighting. <laughs> They're arguing about something. And it was one of those moments where if you've ever had one of these arguments, you probably had a moment like this. He didn't want to let it go. He's just kind of holding on to it. <laughs> And they go in and they're about to take communion. And one of the things they do in their family, it's a little, a little tiny thing. I, we actually do this a little bit in ours, sometimes comically, sometimes real. For about 1,500 years, the practice of a lot of churches is before you take communion, there's a moment where you share peace with each other. Not in some hippie weird way, but it was basically a simple thing where we'd say, um, before we take the meal, Jeff, the peace of God be with you. And you'd say and with you. Now here's why people have done that for 1,500 years. They take seriously, Jesus said, if you find yourself at the altar about to worship and realize there's something against a brother or a sister, you leave the altar and you go deal with the reconciliation, then you come back to that moment. So they practice it. You don't get to go to communion until you have declared peace. That's powerful. So they talk about that in their family. So imagine this, on this day, they fought on the way. He doesn't want to let go of it. And there's this beautiful moment. He says it every time he tells the story, tears in his eyes. His wife handed him the communion elements. And guess what she said? The peace of the Lord be with you. And he let it go. 
What if we took the meal that seriously and we reenacted it? The meal is intended to change your marriage, your family, and your relationship with the world. It is a remembering sign. Quickly, there is also water. What happened to them is God split the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. It is, go read 1 Corinthians 10. It is, Paul says, their baptismal moment. They were baptized into Moses and into the cloud. There's a lot we can do with that. Here's the big picture. Think about this. It is a rebirth moment. That is when they're born as a nation. But here's the cool thing. Think about this. Just like the plagues were the uncreation of Egypt, did you know the Red Sea is the recreation or the new creation of Israel? How'd you catch it? So beautiful. What did God do at the beginning of creation? He separated the water from dry land. What does he do before he leads them across the water? Oh, it's so cool. What you see that? Separates the water and they walk across on dry land. What is the first thing he does in creation? He says, let there be light. And he separated the light from the dark. What does he do with the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire? He separated the Egyptians from the Israelites with light and with darkness. And of course, the last thing he does on day six of creation is he creates and enables human life. What happens when he gets them across the Red Sea? He has them live. Isn't that powerful? God in his remembering sign of the Red Sea, or his great historical sign says, here what I'm doing for you is I'm recreating you as a nation so that you can then go be recreating the world. Wow, isn't that awesome? Wouldn't it be great? There was a water sign for us. Wouldn't it be great if there was a water remembering sign for the great historical sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? This is why I say this all the time. Let's be honest, we have not always communicated well with the Christian world or the world about baptism. If you've ever been beaten up by a Church of Christ person about baptism, we confess and we repent and we're sorry. That being said, I will also say I will never apologize for saying this is an incredibly significant sign of God. It is not just a little moment where we think about something that happened a long time ago. God shows up in the moment. It is a remembering sign. By the way, we can still be gracious and teach that. God can save anybody any way God wants to. He is not a God of technicalities. Let's stop beating people up about that. And let's hold to the beautiful theology of baptism. We are invited into the waters to be born again. To put to death all of the brokenness of our life. And if you're like some of my friends that said, I'm putting off baptism until I get good enough. Oh my goodness. Did you get the image? I love this in in, uh, Exodus 14. What did Israel have to do to be born again in the water? Did you catch what Moses said? The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You bring nothing to the water except for your desperation and your surrender. There will be time when God calls them to battle and fight. There will be time for you to do that too. You do not have to fight for your identity, and you do not have to fight for your salvation. You just need to be still. And the water of baptism is your rebirth into the community of the people of God. Isn't it glorious that he gives us a moment that isn't a checkbox, It tells you no matter where you go and what you do and no matter what the world lies to you about, this is who you are. And I marked you as mine.
Listen. God will bring signs of his life into your life. Watch for it. Watch for signs of God's presence. Watch for signs of God's calling. Watch for signs of God showing up any number of ways in your life. You can put the next slide up if you want. God will be present in any number of ways. But one of the things we do know is that we get to practice together living out the story of God. I love the way one speaker and writer puts it. We were intended not just to share the story of God's new creation. We were intended to be the story. So we practice it week in and week out, day in and day out, with these beautiful symbols and signs that God has given us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. I just come to a story like this, and I am astounded at your brilliance. I'm astounded at all the different ways that you go out of your way to get to our hearts. All the different ways you tie your story in together. God, you are brilliant, and you are unbelievably compassionate. And you want us to be part of your story. Thank you for weaving us in. Thank you for calling us into your adventure. Thank you for doing these great things, but not just retiring. Thank you for bringing these great moments of exodus and resurrection and life into our daily lives. Father, let us not just receive it here. Let us be the message that we will share with the world. In the glorious resurrected name of Jesus, we pray.